Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 161, Captain of Kent. Following my newfound tactic of starting off an episode with some nasty piece of villainy, let me take you to a few weeks later in the very year that the Duke of Suffolk had been beheaded in a small boat for his manifest failures. We're in Herefordshire, and the very Reverend William Aisco, Bishop of Salisbury, was celebrating Mass at the Priory Church of Eddington in Wiltshire. Nothing strange in that, you might say, but if you'd been in the congregation, you might have noticed that the good bishop looked troubled. Then you might have become aware of the growing noise of raised and angry voices, before suddenly, crash, the church doors burst open and in charged a mob. No doubt the bishop protested about the desecration of the house of God, and if he did, he was ignored. The bishop was dragged from the chancel and from the church and to the top of a nearby hill. There he was forced to kneel, and as he prayed, he was brutally beheaded. His rich clothes and vestments were torn off him and his naked body left exposed. Now, the killing of a man of the cloth in such a religious and superstitious time is quite remarkable, a vanishingly rare occurrence. And look at the opprobrium heaped on Henry II and Henry IV when they were guilty of such things, though admittedly archbishops in their cases. So what had the bishop done to deserve such treatment? Well, last time, a few weeks ago, back in the mists of time, we saw poor old Suffolk suffer the ultimate price of failure, and we saw how part of the reason for his failure was the appearance of a court culture, divorced from the commons. A relatively small circle of magnates who surrounded the king as part of his household and council of great men, and who fed from the trough of royal patronage. And at the same time, violence rose like a tide around the country. Now, everyone was used to violence to a degree. It was to a degree endemic. But this, this was violence from the very men who were supposed to have their privileged status and wealth precisely because they protected the men and women who worked. Bishop Aisco was one of those whose snout was considered to have been in the trough. He'd been involved with Suffolk in negotiations with France. He'd married the king and queen, that very same queen who was supposed to have bought peace in France but appeared, in fact, to have brought dishonour and defeat. He'd been implicated in the death of good Duke Humphrey, and everyone had loved good Duke Humphrey. Even worse, he was considered responsible for the fact that this French queen had not even done her duty and produced an heir, because rumour had it that William Aisco had been dissuading the king from, quote, having his sport with the queen. Bad bishop! And now, 
dead bishop. And in fact, as you bent over your plough in the cold and wet, thinking about the great affairs of state, as you do, as you bend over your plough and team of eight, you might think that a king basically only had two jobs, just two. One of them was to fight and win glorious wars on behalf of his people. So, just being swept out of Normandy, no prizes there. And the second was to maintain justice. Wah, wah, oops. No prizes there either. You would be entitled to feel a little miffed as you trudged through the mud, though, of course, given this was May, you were probably unlikely to be ploughing, but you take the point, hopefully. And in fact, there was plenty of resentment about. Criticising the king directly was seriously just not something you did. Even hacking the head off a bishop and then stripping his dead body naked was preferable. But the provocation here had been severe. The death of William Aisko was actually part of a wider wave of reaction to Henry VI's incompetent rule that had already produced the death of Suffolk, led to a reform programme from the Commons of Parliament, a revolt led by Jack Cade, and then 25 years of mayhem, which we romantically call the Wars of the Roses. It had been the Commons of Parliament that had led the charge in furiously objecting to the way that government was being conducted. But again, accusing the king directly just was not on. And so, a time-hallowed formula was followed. Not being able to bear accusing the king, the blame was attached to evil counsellors around the king. Because, of course, on his own, the king could do no wrong, but folk like Suffolk had led him astray, had deceived him. If he just took away those evil counsellors, everything would be okay again. It's something that's really difficult to grasp, I think, with our modern attitudes, or at least I find it so. Familiarity breeds contempt, I'm told, so maybe it's true that magnates and those that met the king frequently felt the mystical, quasi-religious aura around the king much less. And people that close were prepared to contemplate removing a king like Richard II, but for most people, the very idea was unthinkable. It's only really possible to understand how cataclysmic was the public execution of Charles I in 1649 if you grasp this point, that the king was a special, special, slightly religious figure. Nonetheless, it's also true that despite the public record, chinks and cracks do appear that demonstrate that maybe more radical ideas did on occasion circulate. There's a fascinating quote from the trial of the two shipmen who were put on trial for Suffolk's murder. They were alleged to have declared, when shown Suffolk's safe conduct from the king, that they recognised no such king, that the crown of the realm was the community of the realm. Now these are super radical thoughts. Comments as radical as these are very rare, but point to that deeper awareness and reaction against the rigid hierarchy of the medieval world. A political lampoon called A Warning to King Henry in 1449 had also warned the king not to pardon Suffolk and that if he stood by traitors he would need to look to his own position. But threats like this were unusual and exceptional stuff. Anyway, that's a digression. In the main, the commons and the kind of people who set upon the Bishop of Salisbury targeted their ire on evil councillors around the king. And actually, while in the end the responsibility for the majority of these ills came back to the king for his complete failure to manage his administration, it is true to say that there were indeed councillors around the king that at very least qualified for the tag nasty piece of work, even if evil might be a little strong. Men who behaved with a good deal less honour and commitment 
than had Suffolk. The point about all of this is that Henry was a weakling who had no genuine understanding of the need to distribute patronage fairly and honestly across his kingdom. He saw the knights of the body, the household nobility and magnates attendant on him. He saw them and rewarded them. He defended them loyally to the hilt, which sounds like a good thing, but he defended them right or wrong. And as a result, defended the evils they'd visited on the more powerless of his subjects. Let us take, just as an example, the life and times of James Fiennes, the first baron of Say and Seal. The dual title, Say and Seal, is a bit odd, and it's odd because there was actually a better claimant to the original lordship, which was simply the lordship of Say. And so this new title had to be created, in itself a sign of the corners that Henry VI allowed to be cut in order to reward the people of his household. Say and Seal was a knight of the body, and also Chamberlain of the Queen's household, and as a result the swill cascaded freely around his snout. He was granted manners in abundance, he was made steward of Pevensey, constable of Hereford Castle, constable of Hartford Castle, sheriff of Worcester, warden of the Cinque Ports, constable of Dover, the list goes on. And it's not just the hideous pluralism all this entails. Say and Seal was a ruthless, greedy and rapacious exploiter of the rights and powers he was given. He forced landowners to sell land to him at rock-bottom prices. He arrested one landowner to force him to agree to a sale. He was routinely guilty of extortion and corruption. And so, in 1449, he was made Treasurer of England. Say and Seal was just one example of the worst kind of lowlife that formed at least part of the king's household. And it was intolerable to all who suffered under this kind of treatment. Once again, the people who were supposed to uphold the law and order to protect and defend the weaker sections of society were often the ones abusing their powers and carrying out their private feuds against other great men. Henry VI was failing to uphold the basic reasons for his existence. The Commons of Parliament had forced the issue of Suffolk and pursued him as the perpetrator of these abuses, because he was the only one they could get at. His removal was to a degree a victory for the Commons, though the manner of the King's sidestepping of the accusation of treachery on Suffolk enraged them. But it was the Commons of Parliament, as opposed to the magnates and peers of the realm as represented in the Upper House of Parliament, that drove forward the demands for reform. It might be worth a quick digression to note that during Henry's reign so far, the ranks of the peerage had grown dramatically as Henry handed out the honours. But despite this, the peerage was certainly no more politically important. In fact, attendance at the Great Council's estate and meetings of the Upper House were pretty feeble. In 1435, for example, only 24 of the possible 80 peers attended. It's an interesting stat, because it helps visualise these meetings and makes you realise just how very small they were. Meanwhile, the Commons of Parliament was made up of 74 knights of the Shire and 190 burgesses of the town, so there's a Parliament for about 260 people, which is also not massive. The right to vote in Parliament had become a valued piece of property. The rules were that to be elected as Knight of the Shire, you needed land worth at least 40 shillings per annum. In general, the elections were pretty effective. The Commons were not pawns of the greater magnates and consistently showed their independence. Now, when they impeached Suffolk, the Commons also had another target. This was the scandalously flaky state 
of the royal finances. Consistently, despite the crying need for money to defend the realm in France, they refused to vote taxation because government was so poorly carried out. And instead, they insisted that the king must live off his own, i.e. use the crown's revenue to carry out any crownly activities going on and use parliament only for emergency. Therefore, the commons in parliament insisted on a resumption of all the crown lands that Henry had given away to his cronies. The term resumption will come up again, just to be clear. It means that Henry needed to take back the lands he'd granted to his followers and manage them directly from the crown, which meant the crown would get the revenue, of course. Pretty painful crony-wise, though. Henry fought this tooth and nail. Fighting for his lands in France was clearly beyond him, but fighting for the cronies around him that might be upset at the loss of their lands was clearly the lesser of two evils. In 1450, at the end of March, Henry decided that the hostile atmosphere of London was just too much for him, and he withdrew to the heartlands of the Lancastrian Midlands and called a parliament at Leicester, which sat in May 1450. But even in glorious Leicester, the Commons would not let the issue of the resumption drop. Henry knew that he could no longer resist, though the coercion infuriated him. But his administration had now had a year to prepare since the idea had first come up, so they agreed to the resumption, but subject to a string of exemptions as long as your arm. Exemptions that basically emasculated the bill. So for the Commons it was an enormous victory in principle. They'd won their point in the face of both magnate and king. But no one was fooled. This was only round one. It was enough to persuade the Commons to vote a tax, but only enough for them to vote a tax so paltry, so two-bit, that it would only raise 5,000 quid. While these debates were going on, news came to Leicester Kent in the far southeast of England was on fire. There were burnings and killings. London would soon be under threat. The bad old days of the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 were back. The The Leicester Parliament didn't so much end as fizzle out. The King left for London, members dispersed to look after their defences. I don't suppose that nowadays we think of Kent as being a particularly revolutionary part of the world, but in the 14th and 15th century it's rapidly acquiring the reputation for hell-raising. In April 1450, with the loss of Normandy, the Sheriff of Kent had issued a commission of array. A commission of array is how to raise an army. So the constable in every hundred in Kent was to select all fensible men to serve in their militia and issue them with some equipment and armour. In writing this podcast, I am proud to announce that I have learned a new word, fensible. It means nothing to do with the boundaries between gardens. It means fit to carry arms. I shall use this word fensible whenever available in my personal life from now on. So, no problem with the reasoning. Now that the English had been kicked out of Normandy, England could expect a lot more French raids on the coast. That wouldn't be pretty at all. There'd be burnings and death and destruction and no doubt the odd croissant. And all because of the government's incompetence. At the same time, people were talking. Rumours were spreading. It was known that Queen Margaret was very close to the Duchess of Suffolk, Alice Chaucer, It was said that when Suffolk had been taken, the Queen had taken to her rooms, refused to come out for days. 
Now, with the discovery of Suffolk's body on a Kent beach, the rumour spread like wildfire that, fuelled by his wife's fury, the king intended to hold Kent responsible for Suffolk's death. And the whole country was to be razed to the ground, and all of it turned into a royal forest, with all those hideous rules about what you could and couldn't do, and what you had to do to your dog's toenails, all the things that would make it impossible for anyone to make a living anymore. But as always, it's essential to go back to William Cobbett's dictum, I defy you to agitate a fellow on a full stomach. Throw into the mix a severe economic downturn. Cloth and wool exports had fallen catastrophically, fuelled by the continental chaos and piracy in the narrow seas. So, by the end of May, armed bands were gathering. The foment was spreading to Sussex on the south coast, the counties immediately north of London, Middlesex and Surrey, Essex, and a leader was emerging. His name was John Mortimer, or at least that's what he called himself, though it would emerge that his real name was Jack Cade. It was rumoured that he was descended from the same family to which Richard, Duke of York, belonged, the line with royal blood running in its veins. Now, Jack Cade never claimed to be a rival claimant to the throne or anything, but he did use the Mortimer name to connect him to York. There were a couple of advantages to this. One was, of course, that it gave him some noble authority. The other is that the name of Richard of York was emerging as a name to be conjured with, the name of a potential saviour of the nation. He'd been sent to Ireland, of course, and so was untainted by any recent political goings-on. He'd been turfed out of his job as Governor-General of France in favour of Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, in 1448, and so wasn't connected with the stigma of the military failure in France. And people had great faith in the efficacy of the blood royal. They wanted dukes of the blood to gather round the king instead of all these hideous poxy two-bit councillors like the hated Treasurer of England and Kent landowner Lord Say and Seal. If the blood royal ruled the roost, the world would be put to rights. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In fact, no one knows who Jack Cade really was. There were a number of rumours that came along to fill the gap. Irishman, soldier, fugitive from the law, a physician, a sorcerer, a mercenary who had fought for the hated French and murdered a pregnant woman. None of them were verifiable in any way, so Jack Cade, captain of Kent, is all we can stick our hat on. What we do know is that Cade rose to the top of the movement with some justice. He had intelligence, was decisive, brave, prepared to be ruthless. Cade did what Wat Tyler had also tried to do, keep the rebels under control, keep a lid on general lawlessness and looting, because although inevitably a bunch of the violent and criminally minded leapt on this as a chance to smash a few windows and run off with that telly that was just sitting there, the vast majority of the people involved did not in any way consider themselves to be conducting a rebellion. They were the king's loyal subjects like any others. They were petitioners, just like the Commons of Parliament or the greatest magnate of the land. They'd just heard that things weren't going well at Parliament and Leicester, and they wanted to add the weight of their voices to that of the Commons in Parliament, to persuade the King to do the right thing. 
the composition of these petitioners is difficult to know. There is actually a seductive amount of information about them. At the end of all this, when everything had settled down, there was something called a general pardon offered by the Crown. So people could come in and be given forgiveness for any involvement they'd had. And for this purpose, a pardon book was kept, which recorded everyone who came to ask for a pardon of the King for the chaos that had just finished. So it looks as though we know about everyone who's been involved, but the trouble is that it's perfectly possible that after the event, folks just asked for a pardon just in case they got accused of something and couldn't prove they hadn't been involved or hadn't been there. From the pardon book, it looks as though a very large number of respectable people were involved in the revolt, the local gentry, the local constables even. And it would explain, if it were true, the very close alignment between the demands at the Leicester Parliament and the petition that Cade put together. But it's not a safe conclusion. We can't be sure. It is possible these folks were just knitting themselves an arse cover to be safe from future prosecution and hadn't been involved at all. The legal equivalent of putting a book down your pants. Cade had a set of five demands, which, as I say, were remarkably well aligned with the demands being made by the Commons, with the addition of the local concerns that had provided the spark for the movement. These were for the King to 1. Resume his domain lands to restore his dignity. The resumption. 2. Banish all evil councillors and replace them with lords of his blood. Duke of York, Exeter, Buckingham. Norfolk. 3. Punish everyone who'd caused the death of the good Duke of Gloucester and lost our overseas possessions. 4. Re-establish good justice. Get rid of all the abuses they suffered from. Extortion, corruption, the use of purveyance from the king's household. Purveyance, just to remind you, is the forcible purchase of food and goods for the royal household. We used to call it prees. And 5. Relief from the specific local abuses. So, confirm to us that Kent isn't going to become a royal forest. Stop the abuses of local landlords, such as Say and Seal. Stop the extortions of the sheriff, William Crowner. Cade did his level best to make sure the demands of the people were reasonable and clear. He presented all of this as the humble petition of the poor commons, honest folk, making representation from the common people to help solve the problems of the realm. The people of Kent, Sussex, Middlesex, Surrey and Essex, and folk from wider abroad, such as those who had murdered and stripped the bishop, they all now moved to Blackheath, just southeast of London, just as Wat Tyler had done in 1381. Unfortunately, Henry had absolutely no interest in hearing the voice of the common people, darling particularly when presented in such a presumptuous way. When the Commons of Parliament had raised their objections to Suffolk, Henry's reaction had been a stubborn, arrogant and uncreative refusal to listen, or to make changes, or to try to solve the problem. The problem was effectively commanded to just go away. His reaction was exactly the same here. Henry had come to London and moved his considerable army to within sight of Blackheath. But unlike the young Richard II, he had no interest in going to meet the rebels or talking to them. He wanted them to get back to where they belonged, and so he proposed that he and his army move immediately to crush the rebels, which was at least decisive, if not very nice.
he was prevailed upon to delay, at least until someone had officially spoken to them. The delegation was led by the Duke of Buckingham. I feel conscious, gentle listeners, that in our little canoe heading down the river of English history, ahead of us we can hear the roaring waterfall that is the Wars of the Roses. This means a waterfall, a cascade of names. So, let me introduce the Duke of Buckingham to you. Because his is an important family, because the Staffords, the family that are the holders of the title of the Duke of Buckingham, are of the blood royal. They are descended from Edward III's youngest son, Thomas of Woodstock. Humphrey Stafford was the current incumbent, and he was a veteran of the wars with France and an elder statesman, and would basically remain loyal to the king and queen, but also be a voice of reason, until he croaks, trying to bring the factions together. It was typical of Buckingham to go and see the rebels. He was desperate to protect an increasingly vulnerable monarch, but also to see consensus and conciliar rule prevail, to keep the ship of state sailing. However, when they returned with Cade's requests, Henry simply refused to consider them, and the news reached Cade's camp that the following day the king himself would lead an army to destroy them. This was, of course, not news for celebration. There was more than one consideration here. Firstly, Henry had an army full of nasty-looking blokes with pointy weapons, and who knows what the uncertainty of battle would bring. That might have been okay on its own, but there was actually another even more important consideration. If the rebels took the field against the king, they would no longer be able to present themselves as petitioners. They would immediately become guilty of treason. So, under the cover of darkness, they broke into groups and vanished. This wasn't the end of the affair. They clearly remained organised and in contact, and very likely planned to gather again when the king left. But instead the king sent a small force after them, of about 400 men, to hunt these presumptuous peasants down and teach them a good lesson. The presumptuous peasants were waiting. The king's men walked into an ambush and were slaughtered. And meanwhile, the king's main army was restless. They didn't like this treatment. They felt the same as the rebels. They also wanted to get rid of these evil councillors corrupting the king. And when the king got the army together to order them to further pursue the rebels, a great shout went up. Destroy the traitors around the king! Henry's bowels were made of water, his liver of milk, his spine of jelly. He caved completely. He arrested Sayin Seal and William Crowner, the Sheriff of Kent, sent them to the Tower and issued a proclamation against traitors. And then he ran away. He withdrew to Greenwich and then to Westminster. He was planning to run away to his lovely, safe Lancaster estates. The Mayor of London begged him not to desert them, to stay and face the rebels. But Henry was terrified. And by the 7th of July, he was in Kenilworth in the Midlands, in his massive palace and castle there. Essentially, there was a problem. It was big and hairy. So he decided it should be somebody else's problem. And he ran away. Pretty shameful. Meanwhile, by the 23rd of June, Cade was back at Blackheath. And unsurprisingly, the decision was to move on London and deal with the traitors themselves. By the 2nd of July, 1450, they'd occupied Southwark at the southern end of London Bridge. To the northeast, across the river, 
the men of Essex appeared outside the city walls at Aldgate and spread themselves over the fields. London was under siege again. Separating Cade from London was the fortress and drawbridge at Southwark. But Cade had friends inside the city. The drawbridge ropes were cut, down it came, and the rebels swept like a plague into the terrified city. Cade put out strict orders that there was to be no trouble, that life and property were to be respected. It's a racing certainty that this rule was flouted, but the situation never seems to have descended into quite the kind of chaos of the Peasants' Revolt 70 years earlier. Then probably the most remarkable thing about all of this sorry affair was the word that then arrived from the King, quivering behind his walls at Kenilworth. Henry gave permission to Cade and the rebels to set up a royal court to try traitors. I mean, police. And so, of course, Cade did that very thing. He set up a court at Guildhall, doing his best to make sure things looked nice and legal, as of course it was, because that's what the king had said he could do, and Say and Seal was dragged from the tower to face justice. He demanded trial by his peers, at which point Cade got real. The only guy Say and Seal was going to see was a priest. And then Say and Seal was dragged to the fountain in Cheapside in London called The Standard, newly repaired by Henry VI, helpfully, and relieved of his head. His body was then dragged round the city. William Crowner, Sheriff of Kent, was taken from Fleet Prison and beheaded outside the city gates at Mile End. The heads of both were stuck on pikes and made to kiss each other in a macabre puppet show. Matthew Gough was a Welshman and a veteran of the Welsh Wars. It was Matthew Gough who finally helped the government develop a backbone. Together with the mayor, he gathered a force of men, and by the 5th of July he was ready, and they counterattacked the rebels, seeking to push them back over London Bridge and out into Southwark. Now Cade knew this was make or break. If they were pushed out, there would be no way back. And through the night, the fight went on into the morning, the narrow front making it difficult for anyone to gain an advantage. But slowly, step by step, the rebels were being pushed back. In desperation, Cade broke open the Marshalsea prison, flooding his rank with prisoners. But it did no good. Cade was driven back over the ridge into Southwark. The rebels knew it was all over. Having been pushed out, there was no way they were getting back in. It was great to have put a few things to right. But time to go home, put the feet up. While King Henry had lost his head, his wife, Margaret of Anjou, had stayed put in her palace east of London at Greenwich. At which point she intervened and suggested a general pardon, which in terms of a short-term solution was exactly the right thing to do, and also a traditional face-saver for the king, the gentle queen generously staying in the hand of retribution, that sort of thing. The rebels fell over themselves to comply and the rebellion was effectively over. All except for Jack Cade, he refused and fled probably quite well aware he was one rebel likely not to be excused. And rather upsettingly, Jack took with him a barge full of treasure that had been looted, which rather spoils the impression we've had of Jack Cade up to this point. But I guess by this point, fair dues, the game was clearly up. Cade was eventually tracked down in a garden in Sussex by the new sheriff, but did not go easily. 
so much so that he died of his wounds before he could be brought back to London. I guess he probably thought that anything was better than being disemboweled and having your genitals burnt in front of your nose. And so only his head arrived back, mounted on the traditional pole. Although the rebellion was over, and Henry bravely returned to the capital for a celebratory service in Westminster Abbey on the 28th of July, neither the fall of Suffolk nor the revolt had done anything to resolve any fundamental issues, and it had done nothing at all to help Henry's reputation. He had demonstrated again his incapacity to rule. Discontent continued to simmer in London and the south-east. By August the 1st, Cherbourg, the last possession in Normandy, had fallen, and the sorry sight of the sorry Edmund Beaufort, Duke of Sorry Somerset, and the sorry remnants of the sorry army of France, wearily and indeed sorrily, trudged through Cheapside, to the shame and despair of all. Now you might expect Somerset to be flung into the tower for his incompetence, but not a bit of it. The Queen was a big fan of Somerset, and she made her views very clearly known. Henry himself objected to the voices that criticised his Governor-General, and thereby, by implication, his, Henry's, own judgment. So on the 11th of September, Beaufort was appointed as Constable of England. Effectively, Somerset and the Beauforts were to be the new Suffolk, a reward for all his great achievements. Perlise! So that's it for this week, folks. Next week, we head remorsefully towards the Wards of the Roses, as Richard, Duke of York, returns without permission to England to defend his good name. You may have noticed that I said remorsefully rather than remorselessly, because I have to announce, Houston, that, that we have a problem. You will have assumed that I spent my holidays writing podcasts. And actually, you would be correct, but unfortunately, not on the 15th century. The thing is that I had been in a state of some despair about the quality of my Anglo-Saxon episodes for some time. And so I decided to do something about it. I intend to produce a new podcast series called The History of Anglo-Saxon England. Yay! So the good news is that I've written ten blessed episodes. The bad news is I have to go through all that technical rigmarole to create a new podcast on iTunes when, frankly, I have barely enough technical skill to wind up a watch. Meanwhile, I have neglected to write any more episodes for the 15th century. Seriously, folks, I stand on the edge of a cliff looking out over a desert, devoid of podcast episodes. There is nothing in the bank. I do not know when I will be back. What can I say? But look, hopefully not too long. Two, three weeks max, that sort of thing. Meanwhile, slightly guiltily, thanks to all your donators, Ashley, whoa! Very nice of you, Ashley. Tina, Kathy, Jim, Laura, Matthew, Cool, Peter, Michael, Bernard, Mary, Oak, David, Janita, Russell, James. Wonderful. Thanks, all of you. And Jenny. Or at least Jenny's husband. So, thanks for all the comments on the website, iTunes, Facebook, and all that sort of stuff. Good luck, everyone, and till next time.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.